the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. And back to our conversation. Johnny Moore is with us tonight. He is author of Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches. Also serves as vice president of Liberty University. You start the book out, and I and I think it sets up a wonderful illustration um, of the whole scene going on in Mark 1 and 41. And, and I think it wonderfully helps us better understand. And, and maybe you can kind of bring this into the modern day, if you would, Johnny just how significant it was as Jesus interacted with the leper. You know, we, we don't really understand this in our, our modern time because we, in, particularly in the United States, I mean, we don't have these kinds of fear-inducing uh, diseases in, to the degree that it was in the, in the first century. But um, in the first century, I mean, when, when someone had leprosy, when they arrived inside of a town, if they even came into a town, they had to carry a bell with them, and they had to ring the bell. They had to announce themselves as a leper. I mean, if you saw a leper at the end of the road, you would go grabbing your kids and run to the other direction. And so can you imagine when Jesus, in this like show-stopping moment, decides that the lepers are the people he cares about. The lepers are the people that he wants to go extend his grace and his mercy to. I mean, Jesus goes and hangs out with lepers. In fact, there's this wonderful story that everybody's all, all heard about where, where, the, uh, where Mary is washing Jesus' feet with her hair. But what people don't realize very often is that story took place in the home of a guy named Simon the leper. And I think this is a wonderful demonstration of the of the attitude that Jesus had when he came down to planet Earth. I mean, he was after those that society had rejected. He was after those that were on the on the fringes of society. It wasn't to the exclusion of others. I mean, he, he came for everyone. But the show-stopping moments in the gospel, if you read them within their cultural context, is when Jesus goes to the people that no one wanted to talk to and no one cared about. Jesus knew what it was like to be rejected. He was rejected because of this message. But he reached to the rejected ones with grace and mercy and the gospel. And can you imagine that hopeless leper when finally they were healed for the power of God? I mean, this was an amazing, amazing moment. It's no wonder Jesus became quickly famous. I mean, he was the God that went and spent time with those that no one cared to spend time with. You know, it's interesting. We we see many images in world religions of men who would be as gods. I don't know what that this is the singular case of a god that would be as a man. I guess it is. I mean, this this, this Jesus story is unique in all, all of religious history. I mean, I, I talk a lot in the book about uh, my my work around the world. I, I've, I've degreed in religion. I teach religion. I, I travel quite a bit. And I, I've been to the largest mosque in South Asia, and I've sat in the Dalai Lama's temple in this village he lives in in northwest India. I've, I've been to the holiest Hindu and Buddhist places in, in, in South Southeast Asia. I've studied all of these religions, and the one story of everyone that's following a different path is they're trying to get God to pay attention to them. They're ringing their bells as they go into the Hindu temples. The Sikhs have their five caves, and the Muslims have their five pillars. 
and the Buddhists are meditating, and everyone is trying so hard to get God to pay attention to them. But when God named Jesus came down the planet Earth, he announced one of his names as Emmanuel. It was God with us. And where every other religious idea in history seems to be a long road that leads to a door of good works and trying harder to get God to pay attention to them. The story of Jesus is a door that leads to a long road. The way to Jesus is an easy path because Jesus isn't the God that dropped the ladder ladder from heaven for us to climb up. Jesus is the God that dropped the ladder from heaven for him to climb down to grab us and take us back with them. And as you point out, in so many cases of world religions, it's about either not calling attention to yourself, certainly uh, big within Hinduism, I mean, uh, in, in some cases, in some Hindu sects, uh, to even compliment um, how beautiful the child might be it is looked on with, with, with great fear and embarrassment, at least that you draw the ire of a jealous God. And so the notion of trying to appease or avoid God uh, and his wrath in so many ways is, is inherent to all, virtually every major world religion and yet here is one where it's not a matter of what we need to do for God but rather what God has done for us that as scripture reminds us while we were yet sinners Christ came to die for us that through that substitutionary work on the cross we might be able to find forgiveness and reconciliation and then restoration of relationship with the very creator of the universe. It's a fascinating read, and I think one that brings great perspective on this topic. Even though perhaps the title you might go, wait a minute, uh, it is true in many hands. Uh, it's amazing to see that God came down to get his hands dirty. The book called Dirty God Jesus in the Trenches, again, newly published by Thomas Nelson, available through Amazon.com, bookstores around the Bay Area, and of course through Johnny's website at johnnymore.org. That's J O N N I E. M-O-O-R-E dot O-R-G. Johnny, it's been a delight and an education to have you with us today. We'll hope to visit with you again soon. Thanks. My, my pleasure. God bless you. God bless you, brother. There's Johnny Moore again, Vice President of Liberty University, Dirty God, Jesus in the Trenches. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. I revealed to listeners to this program... My goodness, well over a decade ago that my mother had been diagnosed with cancer and she has been uh, battling with cancer and a cancer survivor for the last, oh, I don't know, 12, probably 13 years come this next March. And during the course of that time, I've taken note about one um, very interesting thing that, uh, that occurs in the life of an individual dealing with cancer, and that is that you suddenly become very good with numbers and counting things and keeping tracks of things. It's everything from the dates of appointments to how many pills that you've taken to what time did you take the pills dates become very important anniversaries birthdays wedding anniversaries things of this sort numbers become a very important part of the life of a cancer survivor my guest tonight knows what that's like she has taken the time to pen an interesting book a book that she calls the hardest piece and you'll find out why as we get into our conversation Kara Tippetts has written this book in the midst of a cancer diagnosis. And um, Kara, I sure appreciate you taking some time to be with us today. 
Thanks so much for having me. You know, thinking about the counting, and one of the big things that gets counted beyond anniversaries and birthdays and important dates is time. The realization of time and how quickly it passes, I think, becomes uh, almost obsessive in the case of, of some people struggling with cancer. And with that thought in mind, it leads me to a, a huge question, and that is that you have written this book in the middle of a cancer diagnosis, a cancer diagnosis that began with breast cancer, which is not uncommon for women uh, your age, and yet um, that cancer has grown in many respects. And, and I would suspect, is it fair to say in front of our audience today that from the medical diagnosis you would be considered terminal? Yes, it is. that is fair to say. Mm-hmm. Wow. So here you are in the middle of a terminal cancer diagnosis, and yet you're taking time to write a book. Um, you're taking the time to have a conversation with us today. Why? You know, I feel like um, it's this high calling I've been given, and it's a simple calling of, of asking people to look at their little moments as the huge moments they are and in the hard edges of life not you know mine is cancer but all of us have hard edges in life how do we invite jesus into our stories how do we bring him near and you know i have from the beginning of my um diagnosis two and a half years ago writing is how i process writing is how i um understand things and process and so I've been doing that for two and a half years, and along that journey, a publisher came and asked me if I'd wanted to do a larger work with them. And it felt like a neat legacy, a neat way to leave my voice behind for my children. When this cancer diagnosis came along, you were at a point in your life that I, we, I guess we could define as soaring. You and your husband, Jason, had been called to a church plant um, in one of our most beautiful states, Colorado. You arrived there, a beautiful new home, not long after you arrived, and uh, listeners will recall the Waldo Canyon Fire, I think the largest in, in Colorado history, if not certainly one of the largest, um, that nearly claimed your home. Fortunately, it did not. Long after your arrival there, you had kind of an odd uh, mishap in the bathroom one night. That led to a hospital visit, and not long after that, at the age of 36, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. Tell us what was what was going on at that time. You know, I... It was, it was this, I, I guess I, I can only explain it as God, um, one finger at a time pulling open my hand to my story and redirecting our path to one of strength, to one of beautiful brokenness. And um, the fire, the fall, the cancer, you know, it was, it was very traumatic, it was very hard, but it was this story of, of God saying, I'm going to give you this story, I'm going to ask you to receive it, and from this brokenness is where I want your ministry to begin. And um, it's been beautiful. It's, it's been beautiful to see what God has grown in um, our community, in my own life, in the life of my family, but it doesn't discount how hard it has been. Mm -hmm. It has been very hard. You, in writing... Um, committed to paper some words that I once heard my mother speak a number of years ago um, on a Thanksgiving Eve in discussion about the things that we're grateful for and we usually think about a family and uh, typically health is on that list. My mother was in the middle of one of her um, more vicious rounds of chemotherapy at the time and I recall her saying to me startling words that she considered cancer to be one of her greatest gifts. 
Um, yeah. And we've talked about that several times, and, and she's explained to me what she means by that. When you wrote those words inside of your book, The Hardest Place, what did you mean by those words? You know, I think what it does is it gives you new vision for your living. It gives you um, just a new appreciation for every moment that you're given. And I think so often, because I have young children, it's a, you know, get through the tasks, get through the day, um, do this well, but um, maybe not embrace it, kind of live at a distance from it. And cancer caused me to live in a new filter of life where each day felt like some each breath felt like something to be thankful for each moment and you know when I started my youngest daughter was three and my heart my heart's prayer was that she would grow old enough to to be old enough to have her own memories of me mm. and God has answered that prayer for us she's five now and I remember being five I certainly didn't remember being three and so it feels like um, you're just given these new eyes to see what matters, and then and then also these other eyes to go. This doesn't matter. I'm not giving, I'm not giving my energy to things that are not eternal, that don't that don't aren't significant, that aren't loving, and it kind of gives you a new filter through which you see all of life. So, so this diagnosis, particularly when it is in the terminal stages, as your cancer is, does it reorder the way you prioritize and see things in life? Do you suddenly have things that used to be on the important list that that no no longer are, and things that really only been thought about casually that all of a sudden have become priorities absolutely you know especially in ministry I think um, I think I, I was I was eager, I was willing to spend my time in places that I will no longer spend my time I, you know I still am passionate and love discipleship but the discipleship I do is inviting women into my family it's not something that takes me away from my family and I say ladies come come watch me parent come watch me love my husband ask me questions but don't ask me to take it take time away from my family and and so just partner with me in it and so now you know I, I'm weak I don't have a lot of strength I'll say come come and have dinner at my house and I will let you clean my kitchen and I will sit there and answer questions about marriage and love and parenting and I'll let you help me and I, and, and I totally transformed you know before my ministry was about my strength and helping others and now it's this partnership of, of you know you bring your strength and I'll give you the wisdom that I've gained and it's, and it's really beautiful actually if you've just joined our conversation today, we are visiting with Kara Tippetts. She details her journey dealing with a cancer diagnosis a couple of three years ago that is considered to be stage four. That means it's terminal. She's sharing her story both inside the pages of The Hardest Piece, a new book, by the way, that has been released by David Cook and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. And, of course, uh, sharing her story tonight here with us. For longtime listeners to this program and to this radio station, you will perhaps recall... the journey of Randy Brady, our morning drive host, who over the course of about three years from a diagnosis of mesothelioma cancer, lung cancer, to eventually his passing, one of his last interviews on this radio station, on this program, less than 30 days before he went home to be with the Lord. And that experience that he walked us through over that course of time, which I have repeatedly characterized as 
um, having been an opportunity to see how to live life with much grace in the midst of death and to revisit how we look at death. It's a natural part of life, and yet it tends to scare many of us, and that watching someone walk through all of this can help us to uh, not only learn what it means to live with grace, but also to see God's grace in the midst of facing death. That's much like our conversation with Kara today. We're going to take a brief time out. We'll update you on some traffic. We'll come back to more of Kara's story as this edition of Lifeline continues. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Kara Tippetts is our guest tonight. The book, The Hardest Peace, Experiencing Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard. So, Kara, walk us through the process. So, you moved to Colorado Springs, you and your family, your husband, Jason, part of a new church plant there. You have to deal with the Waldo Canyon fire. You have a fall in the bathroom. You pass out. Um, there was some heart-related issues and got banged up pretty hard hitting the, uh, the uh, tile and the porcelain in the bathroom. Shortly thereafter, you were diagnosed with breast cancer. At what point did it go from just the breast cancer diagnosis to something a little bit more serious, a little bit more um, ominous? Yeah, it it turned to metastatic cancer um, the fall of 2013. You know, I, I in the summer of 2012 is when I was diagnosed and did uh, chemotherapy mistake double mastectomy radiation and we went away and enjoyed the summer together as a family and then in the fall I came back and because of my particular kind of cancer which is hormone driven we had decided to have my ovaries taken out and when they went in to do that surgery is when they found that my reproductive system um, was full of cancer. So they metastasized throughout. the new diagnosis. Mm. And that was in September of 2013 just a little over a year ago. Um, Correct. And through that, of course, uh, I imagine a whole battery of surgeries and MRIs and CAT scans and chemotherapy. Yeah, all of it. CAT scans, I call them scary snorts. I uh, I have gone, and now it has also, cancer has also entered my lymph system behind my heart and in my pelvic area. It's in my bones and has also is also now in my brain. Hmm. Is there a timetable that the doctors have discussed with you? You know, I don't. I, I, my doctor has never talked like that with me. I don't know if it's my specific doctor. Um, he's just like, care we do the next thing. We fight with the next thing we have to fight with, and we keep moving. And I think probably the nature of me being so young, um, he, he and and he's also a believer. So I think he is very cognizant of the fact that he is not the determiner of my days, and has has been in practice long enough to know that you know we don't know. We don't know. Yeah, I, I heard it once said by a physician that uh, when we were born, uh, there is a date stamp on our birth date, but he's looked at the bottom of every baby he's ever delivered, and he's never seen an expiration date. Uh, that's that's right. something that only that's God, exactly something only God Himself knows. And yet, exactly. you you live with the lingering thought that this may be a case where you do not um, grow old. Your children do not bury you as an old woman, but as a fairly young woman. How do you? How do you help explain this to your children? You have four children. Um, one, as you say, is is fairly young, five, six years old. It's difficult to help kids really understand this. They're at the stage when they're still trying to learn about what the beginning of life is about, let alone to yeah. try to comprehend what the end of life is about. 
You know, it's just a long conversation, and it's what Jason and I are both communicators. You're both talkers. We're question askers. So we pursue the hearts of our kids, and we allow them to pursue ours. And, you know, kids know when there's grief in the house, even if the words aren't spoken. And so as the questions come, we fight to be very honest with them. But we're also discerning when when the story is too heavy, and we ask them to trust us, that we're not keeping something from them, but we're trying to protect them in their childhood. So it's a fine line. You know, at times it feels like we're walking on a cliff's edge. But um, we pray a lot and ask the Lord to give us discernment. And, you know, last night I was in bed with my oldest, who's 13, and we just cried. We just cried um, as she's watching me get weaker. And um, I said, you know, it's hard. It's sad. And, you know, I saw a a video yesterday of a a man dying of ALS. And he said something really profound that I that encouraged my daughter. He said, I am not I am not thankful for ALS. I am thankful in ALS. Mm. And 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 then I looked at it in Thessalonians and I saw that to be true. It was Paul saying, In all circumstances be grateful. And I thought, Wow, how profound that I can grieve and be sad for the cancer in my body, but in the midst of it I get to be grateful to Jesus who has who has secured my salvation. You describe in your book having gone through, um, I'll characterize it as, as a, a difficult childhood. You had a father who struggled with a lot of anger issues. Um, probably in today's nomenclature, we would say that he was a man in desperate need of some anger management classes. That set you on a stage of early rebellion. You describe having gone through the experience of uh, drugs and boys and booze and, and finally gone through all of that, having a life and changing encounter with Jesus Christ. But I think it's, it's probably fair to say that your your childhood wasn't the most pleasant. Are there moments when you are upset with God or angry because your four children are going through a difficult childhood too and through no fault yeah. of their own, much like yours? You never asked for an angry father. You just got one. And your four children never asked for a mommy with cancer, but they've got one. Oh, goodness. You're a good question asker. That is really, that is really the heart of my own battle in the place that Jesus meets me because, um, I so enjoy being a mother of my children. I so enjoy being a wife of my excellent husband. I so enjoy the community in which I live and get to, um, know and share Jesus. And so for me, I often grieve. I feel like, I feel like a little girl at a party that's having a great time, enjoying the best of life, and being asked to leave. And some days I want to lay down and throw a fit, and it's it's as though God the Father is saying, you have no idea, Carrie, I have a better party waiting for you. I have something better. But I have I struggle with my imagination for that because I'm... I'm not in the season of life where my kids are grown and I see them walking with the Lord. Those things that you expect at end of life, you know? My kids are so young. I want to be here. I want to be the one to disciple and love them well. And yet God is covenantal. And when I got this diagnosis, I went on a long hike and just talked to the Lord and said, all right, if you're asking me to receive this, then I trust you to show up for my family in stunning ways that I can't even imagine that this will be the better story for them even though I can't picture it. But I can look at those hard edges in my own story, and they're the beautiful places where God showed me how much I needed Him. And so I hate it, but I but I also can see the beauty in it, that this, this broken edge in my children's life will be the place that they see how needy they are for Jesus as well, like I am. 
Has it changed your relationship with your children and and certainly with your husband, Jason? Oh, for sure. I feel, you know, I feel, I just, I feel like I come from a heart of gratitude. And, and I remember, I mean, I starting this battle out, I am not a good sick person. I've never been a good sick person. And so I went to our elders at our church and I just said, you know, I don't believe that illness gives me permission to be unkind. And in if I look at my past, I did let myself be unkind when I felt bad. I would isolate myself from family. I'd pull back. And I just really prayed that my elders would, would pray for me, that I would be kind, that I would show up for life still, that I would meet my family in love instead of grumpiness. And God has been so faithful to us. We have enjoyed each other. We we have made memories and snuggle and read books together and enjoy one another and treasure it, really. Um, I certainly treasure it. Uh, you know, I think as my kids look back, they will as well treasure it. People that go through this experience typically will end up modifying one of two viewpoints and, and how they they live out the, the, the final stages of life. It either dramatically changes the way they see dying or it dramatically changes the way they see living. In, in this case, which, which was the stronger of the two for you? Hmm. I think living. I think living. Um you know, I, I the 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 dying pill is one I'm still trying to swallow. It's a giant hard pill to get down. And but yet before that comes I'm living living near to God as I can and enjoying his grace in the small and big moments of my life and, and showing up. Um, but it's getting harder. You know, I feel myself fading. I feel weakness. I feel uh I, I, I do feel my illness is is weakening me. And so I think God is about to see a tipping point where he's going to teach me the beauty in dying well as well. Mm. You're at a stage in life where, as you point out, day to day, things become more and more of a struggle. Um, Time becomes more precious. In sharing your story in a public fashion, you've written the book, you're doing radio interviews, things of that sort. You you do a daily blog, mundane faithfulness. is this also in part as you share your story in a very public fashion about leaving legacy, leaving spiritual legacy for your children, a form, a manner in which you might document this? You mentioned about your youngest daughter being about five years old, um, being able to leave behind a tangible record, so to speak, so that when she becomes old enough and starts asking the questions and can absorb the answers, has some sort of resource to go to to say, here's a repository that represents the legacy of who my mother was. Is that part of what you're doing here? Absolutely. I feel like for the first um, two years, it was uh, me just sharing my heart and putting it all out there. And and I feel through these words that I've left, these countless, countless words, that where my kids search for me, they will find me. And hopefully also find Jesus in that place and his comfort and his grace and his nearness. I'm curious by that. Is is there something that the rest of us are missing then? Because you're working at at leaving an intentional legacy here. And and so many of us, I think, 
Kara, live a very unintentional life. By that, I mean we get up, we go to work, we come home, we pay the bills, we feed the kids, we put them to bed, we repeat it five days a week. Sundays and Saturdays look a little bit different, but largely we just kind of go through the paces, and there's not a lot of intentional living, if you know what I mean. It's, it, it's more by yeah. accident, and at the end, we've sometimes spooled through not 36 or, or 40 years of life, but we've spooled through 70 or 80 years of life and look back and say, well, where's the legacy? Yes. Yes, I think that's a fantastic point. I feel like um, what you said, and I think that's why people show up to read what I write. My, You know, I don't have 15,000 followers that have cancer. I maybe have a few hundred of my whole following that are also in the battle of cancer with me. But mostly it's, it's women like myself in the mundane moments of life and they're looking at my story and they're thinking, wait a second, maybe I should cherish this moment. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't just get through it. Maybe I should actually embrace it. You know, and the irony, that, the, the irony with that is that we're all terminal. All of us. The yeah. only difference is you have a little greater certainty of, of what that terminal timeline might look like. But, but then again, you know, I might leave here after this radio broadcast with the full intention of arriving at home and enjoying a meal and sitting down with family, and yet that might not happen if I'm killed in an automobile accident on the way home. We're all terminal. We just don't know the timeline. Yeah, I agree. You know, I've called it the grace of the long goodbye. I know, I know that I'm going to heaven. Everybody else is too, but but I've been given this long goodbye to get to fight to live well with my family and love them well and leave them well loved and well cared for and and that they are secure in my my care and love for them. And but that's all of our callings, isn't it? You know, it's all of our callings to to love and kindness that love never ends. And and in Philippians it says abound more and more in love. But so often we 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 are comfortable in our love. I'm comfortable in my routine. And maybe I'm not abounding more this year than I abounded last year. Um, and so that has been my high privilege to get to share that. Like, how are you How are you growing in love? Because that love never ends. The love I invest in my children is going to go long past my last breath. It's going to meet them on their hard days when I'm not there to meet them. If you've just joined us, Kara Tippetts is with us today. She has a blog called Mundane Faithfulness, and she has a new book out where she shares the story of her terminal cancer diagnosis, the spiritual legacy, and the impact that it's had on her life and the life of her family, and her relationship with her husband, and ultimately with her God. The book, The Hardest Peace, Expecting Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard. We'll take a brief time out. Come back with more of Lifeline in just a moment. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. Back to our conversation. Kara Tippetts is with us today. We're talking about her book, The Hardest Peace. She was diagnosed first in the summer of 2012 with breast cancer. That diagnosis turned terminal just about a year ago in September of 2013. Kara, I want to talk about perhaps the most important, most intimate relationship that you have, and that is your relationship with your God. I'm I'm trying to think here during the break and put myself in your position and I'm imagining that I'm 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 kind of my my emotions my feelings are flowing from um a sense of anticipation of being done with 
the chemo and the pain and the weakness and the hair loss and having that new glorified body and, and finally being in the very presence of God himself. Then there's the other side of me that says, when I get up there, I am going to give God a piece of my mind. How dare he allow this to happen when I'm at the peak of my life? In a in a in a in a young marriage relationship that has decades to go by comparison, and the mother of four young children, God, how dare you? Where do you struggle? Where do, where 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 as you think about that that encounter when it will happen? Where's your heart and mind? You know, my heart might land there one day, but it hasn't yet. Um, after I found we first found cancer in my brain. My husband found me crumpled on the floor in the corner of our bedroom, and we were weeping together, and I said, can we fight to have a broken heart instead of an angry heart? Mm. And and that is the path we have chosen, and it has, it's not easy. Sometimes the anger feels easy, and uh, brokenness is hard, um, and yet that's the journey we've been on. I, what has happened with my writing is I use my writing to point out the places that God has shown up for me. That as he's asked me to walk this hard story, the places he has cared for me and gently and tenderly loved me. And so when you, you know, Ann Voskamp writes that if you don't, if we don't write down our thankfulness, then we're really not thankful. And it's the same with grace, getting to write down the way that these undeserved gifts, and that's what grace is to me. I couldn't earn them. I couldn't I couldn't earn Jesus and his salvation and his dying on the cross. I couldn't earn my community carrying me in ways that I can't reciprocate. I can't I can't reciprocate anymore. And yet when I started naming those things, my heart stayed tender to the Lord mm. and stayed soft. And and you know, his name is Emmanuel, God with us. And so as he's given us this hard story to receive, he's also given us himself. You know, he's not only, it's like communion, not only is he as the host, he is the meal. Um, and so that is that is Jesus, and that that is how I am carried, and that is how I can be peaceful and certain of, of what's to come. Is that what also, perhaps of necessity, uh, defines us as believers? And I ask that question because frequently when a non-believer goes through the, the similar experience, and we know from Scripture that you know it rains on the just and the unjust, uh, when it rains on the unjust, they typically shake their hand or their fist toward heaven and say, where is God? In, in this case, is it a matter of saying, here is God, finding God in the midst of the pain, the, the disappointment, the why God questions, and, 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 and have you encountered? him in new ways that maybe you you hadn't before or wouldn't have without the cancer diagnosis you know somebody articulated it well yesterday they said for for so many years I was in love and um, and and looking at the resurrected Jesus and then he said through my suffering and this gentleman had ALS I'm I'm loving and looking at the suffering Jesus the Jesus that could have taken himself off the cross, the Jesus that didn't have to suffer in brokenness, brokenness in, in all areas of life. And so, you know, in, in Philippians 3, it says not only do we get to know Jesus, we get to partner with him in suffering. And so, so much of the, our Christian culture has been bent on winning like our American culture. And I'm just so thankful to know the truth that, that suffering is not a mistake and that it's not God's absence in my life. 
but is the place that he showed me how needy I am for him and that he is my good he is the only good in me you know it's interesting so often particularly in western christianity we uh, we read right through right past that that passage of scripture where paul writes uh, wanting to know him in both the fellowship of his sufferings and the power of his resurrection and that power of the resurrection part that overcoming death part boy that sounds exciting and real and electrifying yep. but that uh, that fellowship of the suffering ooh that that sounds painful and uncomfortable <laughs> and no wait he that. was up on a cross i don't want i don't want to do that and yet it's it's really a package, isn't it? And one it doesn't mean as much without the other. It's hard to comprehend the grace that is shown toward us, that unmerited favor of what Christ did on the cross. It's really hard to comprehend the totality, the depth and breadth of that, if we can't see it in the life, uh, in the light of his suffering, can, can we? That's right. And I think that's why I think that's why we are so hurting our culture with our shallow Christianity that um, promotes health and wealth. And even, you know, I, I, I see the temptation. I, you know, I want health. I certainly am no stranger to wanting wealth. And yet when we when we spend our healthy years a student of our faith, when suffering comes, we can look to Jesus and say, no, this isn't you walking away from me. And so that's often my challenge when I get to speak is, if you're healthy, be a student of your faith for the day that your suffering comes, that you will know his goodness in suffering. And if, if it's not your calling, you'll be called to walk with somebody like me. And and because there are days I need the people walking with me to remind me of God's goodness. I need them to hold up my arms and and remind me that Jesus is present and with me. Because it's hard. It's a hard. We are not meant to live our life on an island alone. And and our culture says control, win, independence, and brokenness says I need others. I can't do this alone, and I need support. We want to in our in our Christian walk in our journey with the Lord. Uh, we want to experience grace. We want to uh, hopefully understand what that grace is and what it means, and and at least to the degree to which we're intellectually capable of. Since we you know we see through that glass darkly right now until we see yeah. Him um, face to face. But to want to be able to somehow comprehend um, His grace and experience His grace. I was struck by the the subtitle of the book, and I know sometimes publishers give the names and the titles and the subtitles of the books and oftentimes authors have have nothing to do with it but it struck me when i first looked at it i read it as experiencing grace in the midst of life's hard and then i read it again and went oh no expecting grace um that's a little bit different is it you you expect god to show up in this illness don't you absolutely i do and i see somebody even said i want another word like hard circumstance hard cancer but but this the, the theme of the book is hard. We all in our lives experience the hard edges in life. Either marriages we don't expect or parenting is harder than we expected, underemployment, unemployment. So my story isn't simply about cancer. It's in the places of your life where life isn't what you expected. Do you press into Jesus? Do you know him? Are you looking for him to fulfill the lonely place of your heart? Or are you filling it with other things, with work, with alcohol, with lust, with things that are not of the Lord? Because that's all of us. All of us have have places where we're disappointed in what life is and how it didn't turn out how we dreamed it to be. But yet, in those places, we can expect God and say, okay, God, 
this isn't what I expected. Perhaps I made an idol of marriage. Perhaps I made an idol of parenting. Can you show me your goodness and who you are in the midst of this hard in my life? And he has shown up. I mean, God has shown up for me in such big and small ways. It's been beautiful. As you press into Jesus, um, I I think um, few of us perhaps ponder the epitaph that will be left behind. I know occasionally a celebrity might uh, read of uh, their own obituary in the newspaper because uh, uh, some publisher has a uh, you know a dozen well-known celebrities' obituaries already written up and ready to drop into the newspaper in a moment's notice when somebody dies and somebody makes a mistake and there they find themselves reading about their own death in the newspaper. Um, yeah. But I, I wonder for you, um, you're in a position where you could literally. Um, at this stage in life, write your own epitaph. And, and mm. in that process, what do you want it to say? What legacy do you wish to leave behind to be remembered by not only in terms of how your husband, Jason, sees you and your four daughters, but but as a as a lover of Jesus? Um, what does that what does that epitaph? What does you want? What do you want that to look like? What a good question. It's a big question. I think my, I would say my first answer was here is a woman that was loved well by God. Mm. And from that place, she spilled that love onto those around her. Um, Because that's that's the gift, isn't it? That I get to be an overflower of God's love. And... um, and that's, that's the only worthy thing I've given my life to, really. I would imagine for you, bedding down at the end of a, of a long, hard day, and sometimes one filled with lots of physical struggle, um, hugging your, your four kids goodnight and falling asleep beside your husband takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? It does. You know, uh, my husband and I touched feet in the night, and then about three in the morning, my Lilith went, always, I can hear her coming. And she sneaks in bed with us. Mm. And there's this part of me that feels like this gratitude in her coming that she won't get to know me as long as the oldest and she's trying to multiply it in the night. And I love it. Where before, when the child came, it, the answer was like, oh no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be as strong or energetic tomorrow. This is interrupting my sleep and all I want is a good night's sleep. And now it's like, Oh, I have this opportunity at three in the morning to kiss all over the face of my five-year-old. Mm. And what a gift that is. And, you know, it, it does. I mean, you, you see you see these big and little moments, and they mean so much. Kara, I sure appreciate your time. I know that in part you're sharing with us here tonight um, has been a sacrifice of time with your family. Thank them mm-hmm. for sharing you with us. Absolutely. Um, I, I love your story, and I want to encourage listeners to follow your story as you continue to blog. And folks can read that blog at mundanefaithfulness.com. That's mundanefaithfulness.com. Uh, this book is a book that I think many of us can take so much away from um, in life's lessons. Um, again, the title is The Hardest Peace, Expecting Grace in the Midst of Life's Hard, newly published by... David Cook, and available at bookstores throughout the Bay Area as well as through Amazon.com. Kara, again, thanks so much for the time and uh, your graciousness, and uh, we'll continue to pray for you. I appreciate you having me. This was a great interview. I appreciate it. 
Thank you. Again, on the web, you can follow her story as she journals her struggles, her triumphs, and um, her experiencing God's grace day by day at MundaneFaithfulness.com. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of Lifeline. Thanks so much for being with us. And if there was anything you heard on today's show that you'd like to hear again or share with a friend, grab a copy of the Lifeline podcast. Simply log on to kfax.com. That's kfax.com for the Lifeline podcast. Our producer is Wanda Sanchez. I'm Craig Roberts. Till next time around, remember, just don't keep the faith. Get out there and share it and make it a great evening. So long. Opinions expressed in the preceding program do not necessarily represent the views of the ownership, staff, or management of KFAX. Copyright Salem Communications, all rights reserved. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.